2: Let me start out by saying I'm. Um, uh, this is probably one of the proudest days um, of my career so far. I mean, I think to be viewed in this light, both by um, ownership, by Sandy in the front office, by the coaching staff, and um, you know, probably most importantly by the players, is uh, a great deal to me and something that you know I'm very appreciative of and, and like I said, honored and and, and very proud to be on that short list of guys that have been considered captain of, of this franchise is, um, for me, um, you know, a dream come true to say the least. And, um, something that I'm very, very, very proud about, you know, the responsibilities are are kind of the same as, um, you know, for at least what I've considered, what I've always tried to do, um, You know, I'm not a real rah-rah, yell and scream type guy. um, Nor will I become that. I think it's just more, you know, lead by example. I think it's more, um, you know, the way that you know I'll prepare, especially with this uh, young of a team. Um, You know, it's something that that obviously I'm going to take the responsibility seriously and um, you know, with a great deal of pride. But I don't think it's going to change anything, um, you know, day to day.
3: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, October the 25th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me personally, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at com. Well, welcome back, everybody. You know, we took a little week off, as I had said we probably would, with uh, the Mets not being in the postseason. I know the World Series, and we're uh, coming to you today after a wacky and maybe one of the more wild endings in World Series history. Still can't get into the postseason, I'll be honest with you guys, and uh, it's my thing. I know there's been some good games. I know that, uh, you know, if you're a Dodgers fan or a Rays fan, you probably disagree, but... That's my uh, take, and I hope that as we turn the corner in 2020 and this shortened season ends and we get into the fun that we always do, which is uh, spend the winter playing GM and analyzing the moves, anticipating moves, and there'll be a new ownership group uh, probably by this time next week, hopefully. So uh, a lot of stuff is going to start to happen, and this show is about to get uh, busy again. And uh, I think in the interim, I hope, and I got some really great feedback about the last podcast with uh, former Met Hall of Famer Mike Piazza. We went back and remembered the 2000 Mets, uh, some new listeners, some great feedback, and I really do appreciate it. And today I was, you know, thinking about over the last week, you know, how are we going to make that, I guess, last podcast transition? And, and do we go in? Do we start jumping into the whole you know, analyzing the the 2021 Mets and and trying to rebuild this thing and and debate and discuss the new ownership situation, maybe a new GM, certainly a new president with Sandy Alderson coming on board. And the the new book came out from Anthony DiComo MLB.com. We've never had Anthony on the show before, so it's a first time guest. But uh, David Wright, the captain, his memoir came out October 13th, and. What better way to transition uh, to continue to look at the past and remember the good times and maybe not so good times in Mets history? Because that's what this show is all about. We talk about the current team, we talk about history, uh, we do it all. You know, we have a you know, hopefully because not only with my experience, but the contributions that happen from people on Twitter and emails and and how they share different things. You know, we we like to look back at Mets history, and we've had to do some of that this year with. Piazza and the 2000 Mets. Unfortunately, the passing of Tom Seaver. Now, David Wright, a career that uh, ended uh, too too short. You know, even though he was on the field up until 2018, I think we'd all agree that you know David Wright's career effectively ended five or six years earlier. But uh, Anthony Decoma will be joining me. I had a chance to catch up with him earlier this week, and we uh, chatted about this new book, "The Captain: David Wright's Memoir." So you'll hear from him in a couple of minutes. The Mets and, and as I was as I was preparing and thinking about this segment, if anybody in the audience is old enough to remember the Mets had put out a 25 year commemorative video sometime in the mid to late 80s, probably right after 86, which talked about their history at the 25 year mark. And one of the segments on that video was, the struggles the team has had at third base. It was like a running joke how many third basemen they had. You know, in the first 25 years, I think they averaged two, two-and-a-half third basemen a year. And at that time, you had the debate of Ray Knight or Howard Johnson, and then Hojo came in and manned the position for a little bit. And then you had the revolving door again with Jeff Kent playing a little bit there, and the Mets not really solidifying that till they signed Robin Ventura. And, you know, it finally... As I remember, when David Wright, and back then in the 2003-2004 uh, time frame, and maybe this is more for me, because I wasn't a prospect junkie, I wasn't a Baseball America guy, I was a guy listening to the fan and was more the pro team and top line, and, and, and I know message boards was starting to come around, so I was starting to learn a little bit about different types of uh, writing that wasn't mainstream yet. S- particularly when it came to prospects. And um, I remember hearing about David Wright and getting excited about how good this guy could be. He could be the franchise, the transition at a time when Piazza was declining and you knew he was on the way out and who was going to be the next face of the franchise. And as good as Jose Reyes was, well, this was the guy that was going to be it all. And he and Reyes were going to anchor this team into the next, uh, you know, 10 years, the next decade of Mets baseball. And I remember getting tickets to go down to Trenton to see the B-Mets play the Trenton Thunder in anticipation of Wright being there, because there was a lot of talk about him not going up to Norfolk because he was from the area, because of the pressures there, and maybe keeping in the minor leagues until 2005. But sure enough, I get uh, tickets, and he's not there. (laughs) But I believe I saw Robinson Cano that night. That's the interesting part. I almost remember Cano having a big game and getting a big hit. Uh, It's a little fuzzy. I'd have to go back and look. So that's interesting how history... Uh, you know, you don't know history's coming in front of you until you look back 15, 16 years uh, later and, and, and laugh at some of those things. But just like I think every other star that the Mets have had, and whether it be Strawberry and Gooden in the what if when it came to their careers and, and, and how they treated their bodies off the field or how serious at times Strawberry took his body on the field, the what if with whether Carlos Beltrán would have swung at that pitch in 06 and lined a gapper and cleared the bases and sent the Mets to the World Series the what if would Edgardo Alfonso if his back had not gone out almost as soon as he became an elite top you know 10 player in baseball what if his back didn't go out Jose Reyes the what if with his legs uh you know what if you know they had kept the 86 team just together another year what would that have meant Matt Harvey, what if? What if the Mets didn't trade Tom Seaver? What if they had brought him back for the 84 uh, season? What if they had a better offense around him in the 70s? How many more games would he have won? Would he be the all-time greatest pitcher, maybe, arguably? There's a lot of what ifs in Mets history with every star. They haven't had a star that I think, even though they've retired Piazza's number, he, he had a great career here, but he didn't grow up at the Mets, so... You know, it's an imperfect, I guess, narrative, if you want to say that. Uh, Strawberry, an imperfect narrative. You know, you go on and on and on. And even Seaver, who's the Met, Mr. Met, if you really want to use someone, the late Tom Seaver, imperfect because of what happened with the trade, what the era, and and not capitalizing on that era. So Wright fits all into that. Even though he's arguably the best overall Mets player, homegrown, certainly offensive player you could argue strawberry still if you want to really dive deep into it but the numbers are favoring right um he's imperfect because when you look at right and you look at his career there's the right that was up until 08 and then there's the right after 08 and i think just to label that or his career based on well it's just the back injury i think you're going to see a little bit different take on that when you read this book now i've done the audiobook so just i didn't read it i listened to it um and what you're going to learn about here with Wright is that it talks about Wright, and i think you you're not surprised when you hear it that throughout his career he lacked confidence at times he had to work really hard that's one takeaway you'll you'll see from his conversations about his memories of being a little leaguer not being even it was basically a fat kid they looked at he had to work he never was a guy that was a natural talent that had this I'm gonna be a big leaguer even though I he he talks about wanting to play baseball all the time and being happiest playing baseball he's not a guy that you would say well taken away I'm gonna be a big leaguer and that's all I'm gonna sleep eat and drink from the minute I put a glove on even though he he did do those things I don't think he ever had the big leagues or the stardom in his mind because he didn't believe he was that good and he had challenges as he, you know, made his way into New York and became successful. Things like City Field, and you know, I know it's all gonna come in your minds. Ah, the City Field, the Wilpons—they they screwed the, the the ballpark up. We know they screwed the ballpark up in, in in some ways. But a player talks about changing his game for City Field and changing his workout regimen and regretting that to a certain degree because it changed who he was and and did that contribute to some of the injuries later on? We'll never know. It's hard to say. Stenosis is hereditary, but maybe some of the weightlifting, maybe some of the different types of work he put in did that. You know, he played with a reckless abandon, and he winds up getting hurt on a defensive play, diving to, tag a runner out. What if he didn't make that play and was a little smarter that night? against Houston in 2011, you know, is he still playing today? And is he still in his late thirties, potentially an elite player? You just don't know. So in, in the past, I always was looking at David Wright as a disappointment because not because he's a bad guy, not because everything was his fault. I always felt like he tied into the disappointments of those Mets teams that let's face it, those 06, 07, 08 Mets teams, 05, you want to throw that in there, they were flawed teams. They weren't built great. And even 06, which was that magic carpet ride where everything went right, that wasn't a good pitching staff. You know, I've talked to guys like Rick Peterson who were intimately involved with that team, and and I remember him telling me uh, in a conversation that in 07, midway through the season, he was shocked how good they were because he knew how much trouble they were in with that pitching. They had such a great offense, and they were always... Guys like Wright and Delgado and Beltran and, and Reyes, but specifically Reyes and Wright, because of how great they were, how dynamic they were, how off- the, the offensive production they were giving, they were masking some of the issues. And then it all came out in the collapse of 07, a season which is a top 20 season when you look at win shares for Wright. Uh, all time. It would have been an all-time great third base season, and he probably would have won an MVP if... You know, the Mets didn't collapse. It probably goes to him instead of Jimmy Rollins. I mean, think about this. This is a guy that up until 08, he averaged about 30 home runs and 100 RBIs, a batting average over 300, an OPS plus of 139, about five wins on average a year, a five-win player. And then after that, he was still pretty good, but injuries limited him. I mean, instead of playing 150 games a year, he's playing a little over 100 games a year. So even though the numbers are good, you can't consider those elite numbers because you're not staying on the field. His value to the team was less. And, you know, ultimately after 2013, you had that period where you knew he was done. I mean, after 2012 and and signing that contract, and it's interesting because the real debate and the real question, which ties more into the franchise, and I want to wrap this thing up because I know you want to hear from Anthony and hear a little bit more about the book. The real debate is where right when I talk about disappointment and my feelings about right. I think how he worked and so hard he worked. When he had his money, he had his money. He didn't have to come back. Once he went down in 2015 with that stenosis diagnosis, he didn't have to play in another big league game. He would have gotten paid. He could have just mailed it in. He, didn't, he certainly wasn't going to retire. He could have done his thing and said, you know what? Or ask for a buyout, go home, enjoy his life, enjoy his family. Say, yep, shucks, but you know, I I made my money. He didn't do that. He wanted to come back. He wanted to play. And for that last squeeze of the orange, that last little bit of juice that was left, that last glimmer, you look at his numbers, even though they weren't traditional right numbers circa 2006-2007, what he gave this team down the stretch going into the postseason in 2015— Yes, without Cespedes doesn't matter. We know that. But what Wright gave was as much an inspiration as as important, his presence there. You know, he got a home run, but he got a big hit in the Dodgers series uh, in game one. Um, I believe his presence and his ability to fight back and show that leadership, the leadership that he got criticized for early in his career. And I'm not a a Kool-Aid drinking Wright fan, believe me. I was as critical as him in the early parts of his career for his leadership because his personality wasn't that big, boisterous personality. We always, I think, uh, beat him up for not being Derek Jeter because he was supposed to be the Mets version of Derek Jeter. And I hate, you know, even to this day how we always try to make players be someone else rather than they are. But him coming back to me changed, in my opinion, the narrative of being a disappointment because he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that, and he, and he. Almost got the Mets with the help of, obviously, Murphy and Cespedes and the pitching and everything. A championship with that would have been the cherry on top. I think that would have completely wiped away any doubt. And it would probably would have been best for him at that point, knowing you know that his career is about to end and his body was going to fall apart. To walk away as a champion, that didn't happen. The ultimate what if, when you look at the Mets as a team, is that what if they had traded Wright and Reyes? And I've talked about this on the podcast would they be better off now? Look at the haul they could have gotten. Maybe more so for right than Reyes, because Reyes was on his walk year. But back then, if you were able to you know, Sandy Alderson, and I've been critical of him on the way back here. He hasn't even taken the position yet, and I've been critical of him. But he was able to flip Carlos Beltran on a walk year for Zach Wheeler. Now, those are a different era of transactions. I don't think you're able to do those transactions now with the way the game has evolved and the way they look at value in terms of players' Um but you know, who knows? Things always tend to swing back and forth in the, in the baseball business. Imagine what he could have gotten for Reyes on a walk year for someone who needed a dynamic, top of the order. You know, potentially at that time the best leadoff hitter in baseball. If you want to argue that, a whole different thing. I know Call Call Crawford was at his height then. You know, Wright could have gotten you a lot. Could have gotten you a lot. And uh, you know, based on the history of the Dickey trade and the Beltron trade, the Sandy did a very good job. Trading off assets to get not only volume of players, but quality, high-quality big leaguers back. I'm certainly thinking he could have gotten something, if not more, for both Wright and Reyes. And how different history would have been. And in a lot of ways it goes back, and I'll leave you all with this. Where the emotion and the loyalty and the narrative of being a, a part of the baseball team and being a fan. And the business side and the cold, hard logic never, ever match. Because I think all of you in this audience, I'd be very surprised if, if I get an email or a comment from somebody after that says, you know what, uh, it's so stupid that they held on to right and signed them to an extension. They were in baseball purgatory. Yes, it would have been unpopular. Think about it. This is after Madoff. It would have been very unpopular. Mets weren't doing any kind of... Moving forward, everything was in purgatory or lateral movements. Trading right would have solidified a full-blown rebuild so soon after their debut. I mean, you remember 2012, you're only six years into that, uh, after that 06 season. They're in their late 20s, they They're late prime. It's almost criminal getting rid of those two guys. They should have been a Met until their 30s, both of them. But that would have been the right business move, and that would have been the move that may have made the Mets' purgatory rebuild under Sandy Alderson that much better. And they might be even that much better now. And they may never have dropped off. Maybe the talent on the roster would be different. But we'll never know. But what I do know is this. My respect and admiration for David Wright. Not that there's a lot of tons of revealing things in this book that, you know, it's not a salacious book. David Wright is in this book what he always was. A very vanilla, nice, professional individual. But the hard work, the time he put in. That he didn't have to do and I know that um, you know some of you might be saying you know why are you giving people credit for being having a high level of integrity but again there was a lot of risk to his body and injury and pain I mean I don't think anybody could understand you know when you're and if those who have had back injuries could understand when your back's hurting you and you're shot I had I throw my back out doing some yard work just a month ago minor back situation I was you know kind of gimpy for about a week week and a half two weeks and This is a guy that, while he had this serious injury, he's trying to get back on the field and play and have a high level of pain tolerance. Tons of respect, bottled up a great moment in Mets history, ended in disappointment. We won't get into that. And then, of course, there's the work to get back. And Maybe after 15, the work to get back was more for him uh, than it would be maybe for the team because I think Wright had to prove to himself that he can do it and give it one last shot. But regardless, he didn't have to come back after that. He got injured in April of 2015. He could have walked away. And he came back, and he tried to honor his contract um, instead of just taking the money and walking away. And you have to respect David Wright for that. And I think you'll get a lot of respect to learn about his narrative. And I think the lesson again, hard work, battling the confidence and overcoming some of the self-doubt that all of us have, whatever our craft is are some of the biggest takeaways about this book. Uh, an interesting book, a good time of the year for Mets fans while they're trying to bridge that gap to the new ownership regime. And I'm going to tell you, we probably have a ton of stuff coming up, ton of fun stuff coming up to talk about. So let's sit back. I put together a little montage for you about David Wright to get you ready. And you'll hear Anthony DeComo of MLB.com author book, The Captain, the David Wright memoir. Join me and we chat about it and things related to David Wright right after this. (laughs) 3-1. There's
1: David Wright's first big league hit. And it should be good for two, and it will be. Get the ball. Oh, Wright hits that one a long way. Left center field, and he comes to Montreal and hits his first major league home run. Oh, a little broken bat, and... Oh, oh, David Wright! What a play! Oh. Oh. You Are so you kidding? That may David be the Mitchell. best I've ever seen. Two, two to right. Hit in the air to center field. Damon going back to the warning track. It's over his head, and the Mets win it. David Wright with the walk-off hit in the bottom of the ninth off Mariano Rivera, and the Mets have taken Game One from the Yankees, seven to six. David Wright, the 23-year-old stud, third baseman from the Mets, took a delivery and shot it over the wall and left to tie this game at one. The 2-1. And Wright lines it into the right field corner. The U.S. wins it! David Wright with a walk off knock. And Team USA moves on to the semis. Very deep as Wright hits one deep to left field. Headley back near the wall. It's out of here! The Mets win the ball game. David Wright with a two-out, two-run walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth. and the Mets win it five to three. Little dribbler. That might be it. Alvarez with the throw skips on by. Murphy to third, backed up by Presley. Murphy's going to try and score, and he'll come home without a throw. 2-0 New York, and we'll wait to see how they score it for Wright. And it is a base hit. And so with that infield single, David Wright is now the Mets all-time hits leader, career hit number 1,419. For what has got to be a little nervous moment for him, his first at bat since April the 14th. He hits one to deep left field, that is gone! David Wright brings himself back into the lineup with thunder. Into the second deck. We have seen this act before. David Wright first at bat coming back from injury at Citizens Bank Park and he clubs one. What is New York gonna get out of this guy? Their captain, David Wright. He's had the bad back he's got spinal stenosis played less than 40 games in the regular season. It's a cold night. And David Ryan is about to make his first major league appearance since May of 2016. Two and a half years of rehab. Spinal stenosis. Neck surgery. Shoulder surgery. Hours and days and months of rehab all. For this moment. And the moments tomorrow. You know we were talking before about. Being anxious in the World Series. I was just thinking that. David probably hasn't been this nervous getting loose for an at-bat since his first at-bat in 2004.
3: Joining me is Anthony Tacomo of MLB.com. You guys know him, author of the new book, The Captain, David Wright's memoir. Uh, He's covered right throughout a majority of his career. And Anthony, first of all, congratulations. This is a great accomplishment putting a book together like this. What's interesting is as I'm, and I'm using the audiobook to to listen to it, which is pretty cool now that you could, you could do that. You can pretty much read anywhere you want. Um, this is a sports luminary that you covered and now you're writing the book. So you would think you, you kind of know everything about him already. Did you learn about David Wright in a way that you didn't expect going into this
0: project?
4: Yeah, I learned a lot. And you know, not that David wasn't open with those of us in the media throughout his career, but when you dig into something as deeply as you need to for a book, you certainly learn a lot more. And, uh, you know, I learned certainly about some of the things that I saw in the field, about the inner workings, about a lot of that stuff. But I think some of the most interesting stuff to me was the things that I didn't personally see. For example, uh, a big one was his upbringing coming up through Virginia, this baseball hotbed where you have David Wright and Michael Kadire and the Upton brothers and Mark Reynolds and Ryan Zimmerman, all these first round picks, all-star major league players coming up right around the same time. You kind of find by reading the book and I found by digging into this, that that really wasn't an accident. And obviously articles had been written about that at the time, but digging in deeply um, you learn about the infrastructure that was in place. And that was very unique to that area at that time that allowed a lot of this to happen. So that was very, very cool. And then I think the other thing that I would touch on with that, uh, aspect would be towards the end of his career uh, both in 2015 and then 2016 through his final game you knew in a certain sense what he was putting himself through physically what he was putting his body through but I don't think I realized I don't think most people realized really the extent of it it, it was so much and he did so much uh, all the while knowing that it probably or that it might not anyway pay big dividends in terms of his ability to get back on the field but he, he really did put in every last uh, – overturn every last stone, put in every last drop that he could to make sure that he was getting everything he could out of his career. And I think you get a sense in the book of just
3: what that entailed. And that was where I was going next. Everybody always says, oh, I could be a big leaguer. I could do this. <laughs> like, hard work. See, David is a good athlete, but he, he you could tell it was about the work ethic. His dad was a cop you know, middle-class family. And you mentioned at the end of his career, it wasn't like, hey, I'm a gifted athlete. Talks about being a pudgy shortstop. Uh, Surprising, because you look at David Wright, the David Wright that the fans know, the media knows, that's a good athlete. But he had to work really hard at it. And I think that, for me, reminds you of how difficult this whole thing is.
4: Yeah, I, I think there was almost, you know, everyone knows about his relationship with Jose Reyes. I think there was almost an intimidation factor when they first met, because David saw Jose as this, Predator naturally gifted athlete who had it all, who could, you know, who was going to walk to the big leagues so that were barely trying and not that Jose wasn't a hard worker as well. He was, but uh, you know, David never saw himself in that same light despite the fact that he was a first round pick. Uh, you know, he came up kind of questioning every step along the way, do I belong here? Am I good enough? And, you know, one of the things he said to me that's in the book that, that stood out was on Christmas, on Thanksgiving, he would always make sure to do something on those holidays, baseball-related, because he thought to himself, no one else is practicing on Christmas. No one else is practicing on Thanksgiving. If I do it and I get a one percentage point of a percentage point of a percentage point better when no one else is, well, then I've outworked someone today, and I know that for a fact. And that was kind of the lunch pill mentality that he brought to every day. That He, he despite the fact that he didn't think he was the most gifted, he knew that he didn't want to ever be outworked by anyone. And that might be a cliche, but I do – genuinely think it's true when it comes to David Wright.
3: And it ties into, he talks about confidence, struggling with defense in the minor leagues. He went through his first slump by overworking down there, uh, making the transition uh, from Shea Stadium to City Field, and then his body obviously breaking down. You saw, I thought, the battle that an athlete has with, no matter how good you are, how high of a level you had, they're having the same doubts that you have at your craft, that I have at my craft. And you're waking up in the morning like a job and saying, Am I good enough? I mean, you don't think of that. This is an all-star. This is a guy that was at one point and may still be borderline hall of famer. Um, You, uh, don't you detail that he detailed that well with, uh, you know, I struggled with feeling and he had doubts at times. So I, I think that's another thing I took away the battle with confidence that like anybody else that David Wright had.
4: Yeah. I think he made himself a little vulnerable in the book and that was cool because Look, anyone who knows David Wright knows that this was never going to be a controversial book. You know, there was never going to be things splashed on the back pages because of something that David said, trashing someone else. He's not that kind of guy. Uh, so what makes a biography or an autobiography of David Wright stand out? I think I think you just hit on it. it is that vulnerability where he really does get into his emotions a bit and what he was thinking and the doubts that he was having, because in a lot of cases, they were similar to doubts that fans had along the way that, that people watching his career had along the way. And I think for someone reading the autobiography of, of a baseball player who obviously had a very successful career, seven time all-star did all these amazing things on the field. And to see that it, it's kind of a wake up call, like you said, to say, well, okay, not everyone just has it. And it's, sure because I made the big leagues, I'm all that. And I never have to worry about anything. These guys, these guys grind and they grind mentally as well. And not just to make it to the big leagues, but to stay there and to do well, it's tough on a lot of these guys. And I think probably every single one of them have significant doubts at some point along their journeys.
3: Anthony DeComo, author of the book, The Captain Joining Me Here, talking about David Wright. The other thing was the city field transition. You always heard the narrative, city field, the wide gaps, the ballpark was massive. We got, we know that. It's a much fairer ballpark now. But he changed his body. He worked at changing his game. And you wonder, yes, he got hurt a couple of years later, and that would have inevitably changed his game. But he even admits lower on base, more home runs, more strikeouts. The David Wright from 04 to 08 was Chipper Jones. The David Wright after, yes, there were injuries, but he wasn't the same player. And it sounds like City Field had a little bit at least to do with it or maybe a bigger impact than we even thought.
4: Yeah, I, I think that was the impact in that he saw it as a challenge. He saw it as something that he needed to overcome. And to do that, to attack it, he bulked up like crazy. He spent way more time in the weight room than he ever had before. And he regrets that uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because he thinks that probably wasn't the best way to go about it. If he had just stopped thinking about home runs and became more of a gap hitter and, and did those sorts of things, he probably would have, at least he believes he probably would have found some more success, but the other part of it is he has since learned later in his career, and I think, you know, what we know about how baseball players and how professional athletes can and should work out has grown so much over the last 10, 15 years, and, you know, he has since realized that maybe weightlifting wasn't the be-all and end-all, and if he had worked more on some mechanical changes in his swing, if he had worked more on being flexible and fluid and all of those things, they would have had as much of an effect on his power output as bulking up to the point where he was not the same type of hitter did. So yeah, th- I think that's definitely a regret. And to David's credit, you know that 2009 season, the first year in City Field, was a very weird one for him statistically. He did manage to bounce back from that and become a more complete player. And in 2010, 2011, 2013, he was a he was an All Star that year. So he 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 did it, but it took a little time. And there was probably a little gap in
3: production in the middle of his career that didn't necessarily have to be there. Two names that he talked about that are names in Mets history that sometimes have a polarizing uh, response by fans, Willie Randolph and Carlos Beltran. Willie Randolph, he talked about the impact Willie had early in his career, bigger than I think we realized. Uh, And Beltran, who gets criticized a lot for the strikeout in uh, Game 7, and maybe not being that vocal leader, Mm -hmm. the fact that Beltran comes up to him virtually before the season starts says, let's work out and the impact it had on a young player like David, who was not even a year in the league, it tells me a lot about those two guys. And it, I think it should give fans maybe a different prism to look at both of them, who both left here under not such great circumstances.
4: Yeah, I thought those were both interesting. You know, Art Howe was David's first manager, but for all intents and purposes, it was really Willie Randolph who came in in his first full season. And from day one, kind of identified David. Not that that was difficult to do, but identified David as this is going to be the guy for the franchise. This is going to be a leader for the franchise. Even if he doesn't become an all-star caliber annual type player, this is the guy that the franchise has to rally around. And I think Willie identified that and set it aside as a personal mission of his to nurture that and to develop that. Because let's not forget Willie Randolph was a, a, a heck of a leader in his own right as a player before he ever became a coach and a manager uh, with the Yankees. So he, he knew what it took. And I think, um, I think Willie Randolph probably is, this is just my opinion, one of the more underrated managers the Mets have had. Uh, he he did see a lot of success, obviously couldn't avoid that collapse in 2007, uh, but he did see a lot of success uh, with some very good teams. And, and Beltran, you know, his whole reputation is going to be looked at differently forever now, just because of what has happened over the past year with the Astros thing. But as you mentioned, coming up, this was one of those guys. He, he was not on the team when David first came up and he got taken under the wing of Joe McEwing and Cliff Floyd and and players on that team who Mets fans remember well. But he was kind of that next wave. He was that guy who came in and all of a sudden it is legitimate. The Mets are being legitimized. And David wanted to soak up every ounce of what made this guy tick, what made him good. It started in the weight room and went on from there. Um, but, yeah, both, I would say, very impactful in
3: David's career. And the way you guys talked about the WBC, a tournament that, let's face it the fans and the media again they're not big into it uh maybe that's debatable but it's looked at as a nuisance David was into it it uh was interesting stories then I don't want to give everything away I want people to buy the book but um um I was surprised at how special that experience was specifically in in 2009 wouldn't have expected that I don't know if that was something that you took away as you were you know going through this like the WBC I'm like chapter on the WBC remembering the games remembering the big hits because you know Mets fans remember you know big hits for the Mets maybe not the single that drove in Jimmy Rollins back in uh, 2009 to win a ball game
4: yeah well you you might be asking the wrong person this one because I've always loved the WBC and I'm not I wasn't surprised that David was so into it and you know part of the thing when it comes with David and the WBC is and I remember at the time watching these moments unfold and thinking especially once you got to 2013, when the Mets were going through some struggles, even in 2009, uh, and David didn't always have a ton of help around him in the Mets lineup. And you saw kind of the things that he would do in terms of, you know, maybe chasing pitches that he shouldn't, wanting to be the guy, you know, wanting to pick up, and he would never say this out loud, but maybe wanting to pick up, uh, you know, some of the emptier parts of the Mets lineup. And then you see him in the WBC, you see him in a lineup surrounded by stars and he's just another piece in the machine and I think that kind of breaks out some of the greatness that, that, you know, maybe could have been, you know, you saw it in obviously in 2005 and 2006 and 2007 with some loaded Mets teams when he was kind of a wheel in that machine. And you saw it in those WBC lineups. And I think, I think it was really cool because this is a guy who I don't doubt if he had had more opportunities in the postseason, if he had had more um, chances to do something on, on bigger stages, he would have come through because, Frankly, every time we had seen it, whether it was in the 2006 postseason to a certain extent, obviously 2015, hurting but still managing to contribute in a big way. And then those WBC games, all-star games as well. Whenever he went to that big stage, he tended to do pretty well. It's just that unlike some other guys, you know, Derek Jeter, guys of, of that nature, he wasn't there every year. He didn't get a chance to showcase it every single year. And
3: on that, it's interesting how history could take a turn. You mentioned more postseason opportunities. Here it is, the team is in purgatory, financial situation in 2012. In hindsight, you want to look at this mechanically, what they would say today, you should have traded Reyes, you should have traded right. That's what you should have done. Got all the prospects, trashed it, rebuilt. They didn't do that for a variety of reasons. And David resigned to stick around. And in some ways, if you think about it, yes, he was still hurt. It might have been best for both sides either to get a deal or work a deal or go somewhere else to get away and start fresh and maybe have what you said, those postseason opportunities. I don't know if you took away anything where that was like a demarcation line where it was a life decision that he had to, to make. And and he stuck around. And I think uh, it's interesting how history could have changed. If just one thing that the Mets right did there, we might not even be talking right now.
2: Who
4: knows? You know? Yeah. Well, I think from your perspective, from my perspective, from people who watch from afar, it was a life decision. From David's perspective, it wasn't a decision. He – He understood that there was a chance the Mets might not have interest based on external factors, based on the Madoff stuff, based on whatever else, and he wouldn't get a chance to resign. But if there was any chance that the team was going to sign him to a fair deal, he wanted to be a Met for life. It was not a, well, let me see what they come back with, and then let me see what, you know, free agency might hold in store for me. He didn't care. He honestly didn't care. And, And to me, that's kind of refreshing from an athlete, especially when you see so many guys. And not even a criticism of them because I'd probably do the same thing trying to get every last dollar. David didn't get every last dollar. It was much more important for him to be here, to be in New York, to be in Queens, growing up a Mets fan, sticking with the Mets, despite the fact that the organization wasn't winning the way he wanted to. He wanted to be part of the solution. So it, it really wasn't something where he debated and he wrestled over this and he thought, well, gee, should I stay with the Mets or should I test free agency and see what I could get there, see where I could go? No, it it was
3: very much, as long as the Mets want me, I'm going to be here. Then you get to 2015. And what I think about is here he is, talks earlier in the book, 2006. It's just the beginning. He says it, all the teammates. I'm sure you remember talking to these 06, 07, 08. It's all We'll get him next year. Now he has the, basically the career ending injury. It looked like he might, stenosis. Once you read about it, you know, anybody who's a novice Web MD goes, this is a problem. He comes back. He plays at pretty much the same elite level from August through the end of the year. Big home run in the World Series. It's almost like that was his final, not that he knew it at the time. But I'm sure he didn't want it to be. The last squeeze out of the orange there. The last bunch of juice out of there. And uh, I almost feel like because he had that experience earlier in his career and he didn't realize that that would have been it for a while, Maybe savored it a little bit more. Maybe there was a more sense of urgency in 15 coming back and seeing that you got to seize that opportunity. What a team, that's face it, wasn't necessarily the favorite. That was a flawed team that went to the World Series and almost won it.
4: Yeah, Mike, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, he has spoken about this. He talks about this in the book coming up in, in 2006 with a loaded team, an absolutely stacked team his thought was, we're going to be here every year. So yeah, it hurt to lose to the Cardinals in the 06 NLCS, but it didn't hurt as much as it might have had he not realized that they weren't going to get there in 2007. They weren't going to get there in 2008. It, it seemed like a done deal to those guys. Uh, and rightfully so, given the quality of their team. But once you get nine years later to 2015, and not only had David not made it back, but he had also started to go through at the very beginning of the physical things that were going to affect him for the rest of his career, he could kind of see the writing on the wall. He could see his own career mortality. I think, yeah, it it is a much different perspective that you have and he appreciated it more knowing that this very well could have been, and it was, and it was, but even at the time thinking this could be his last chance.
3: Before we wrap up, I'll let you go. And it's Andy DeComo, MLB.com, author of the book, The Captain. So Wright's an interesting case in Mets history. Similar to a lot of stars, it's almost like you leave you wanting. He's Chipper Jones for four years. He's not so much the back half. Could be considered leaving you wanting, could be considered a great Met. What's the balance? Before we let you go, what's the balance of David Wright's career? How do you wrap, how do you summarize all that? Because it's two different careers. It's very interesting how you look. at it. It's a very hard case because you could take a different couple of different angles.
4: Well, I think he's also a player that you can't judge solely on what he did on the field uh, because he meant so much to the franchise. He, uh, both from a leadership capacity, he was obviously named the fourth captain in franchise history, um, but just the way that he represented the team continues to represent the team. uh, You know, he meant more than just your typical, not not that there's ever a typical seven time all-star, but he meant more than your typical seven time all-star. So, Yes, I think there is certainly disappointment that he couldn't replicate those Hall of Fame caliber years into his 30s and be that guy and ultimately make it to Cooperstown uh, because he was that good at the peak of his prime. Uh, But I think when you look back at his career on balance, still the best position player in Mets history. Um, You know, one of the better players that we've seen here in New York in a long, long time. And you take the fact that he was that Hall of Fame caliber player, at least for a while, you package it together for the, everything that I just said in terms of what he did for the franchise, what he did to legitimize. I mean, he made this a Mets town for a while there in the, in the mid-2000s, and that takes some doing. So package it all together, package it with the leadership, the fact that he was the captain, the fact that when you think New York Mets, even today, a couple of years after He played his final game. You still think David Wright, he's still one of the more prominent names that pops immediately into your head. Uh, You know, I I think you can't really put a measure on that in terms of its impactfulness. So um, yeah, it it was a successful career by any stretch. I think it's fair to say.
3: You've been very generous of your time. Books the captain, David Wright. Congratulations again. Thank you, Anthony, and uh, we'll see you at the ballpark, I guess, hopefully in a different year next year, right?
4: I hope so, yeah. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate
3: it. The Talking Mets Podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets Podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at Mike Silva at Talking Metspodcast.com. No G, talkingmetspodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Want to thank Anthony DeComo for joining me on uh, the podcast first time and using also some new equipment um, and using Zoom a little bit. To record interviews, so hopefully you enjoy the quality of the interviews. You know, any kind of interview that I do with uh, any phone person, you know, someone on the phone, uh, because of the voiceover IP and the technology, this isn't a you know high tech radio studio here out of my humble abode. There's going to be a difference uh, in sound quality, but uh, I think we're improving. Um, I've gotten some great feedback, and uh, look, ultimately the takeaway, and it's interesting, is that. You had a Hall of Fame third baseman up until 2008. I mean, David Wright up until 2008, and I want to make this point because I don't know if I made this point on the way into the piece with Anthony DeComo. Maybe he wasn't Mike Schmidt and maybe he wasn't Eddie Matthews. At times, he had those years early in his career up until 08, but he was every bit Chipper Jones. He was every bit Wade Boggs. He was every bit different player than Wade Boggs, but you get the point in terms of offense production. Um, you know, he was, you know, Adrian Beltre, in a lot of ways, Adrian Beltre, who is a Hall of Famer, and I know that when you hear that name, what, you know, guy had 477 home runs in his career. Adrian Beltre had the career that I think all of us would have expected out of David Wright. And at that time, when Beltre uh, was in the midst of his career, and let's say Wright comes up in 2004, you know, Beltre had that 48 You know, home run campaign in 05, and and he was a good player for the Mariners. But I don't think anybody during those 05, 06, those early Wright seasons would have said, "Okay, there's two guys, there's Beltre, and there's Wright. And one of those guys is going to go on to a Hall of Fame career. I think 10 out of 10 people would have picked Wright. Nobody would have picked Beltre. And it's funny how baseball, you know, how things turn out. And even with all the injuries, you know, he's still a top 23rd baseman with baseball reference wins above replacement. He's probably more in the Buddy Bell, Greg Nettles, Ken Boyer, maybe Robin Ventura place. He's not a Hall of Famer. He's certainly a Mets Hall of Famer. And it's so soon after his career ended that we're doing, you know, that Anthony did this book with Wright. I'm sure that the the timing was right for Wright and that we're talking about him. I'm sure we'll have more conversation about him. The day I don't know that might come as soon as next year. Who knows what the new ownership group and what their thoughts are on? And I know we had Piazza on, and he talked about it a couple of weeks ago. They are going to try to do better with history and Mets heritage, and they are going to try to uh, improve that component of the franchise, which has been criticized for decades, for decades, going way back. You know, even before the Wilpons owned the team solely, going back to the Double Day pond ownership, there was always criticism of how they looked back at the 80s Mets, the 86 Mets, and, and never really embraced them until many, many years later, probably two decades after that championship when things started to change. So, interesting piece, interesting look back. Hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't had a chance to listen, buy the audiobook or buy the book. Some really good, you know, memories, and you could go back and hear Wright's perspective on different events that seem like yesterday. That's the funny part. When we usually do look backs, it's like, History seems so far away for us, regardless of what age group you're in. It was like yesterday. I remember I six, like it was yesterday. And now we're talking about it in the history books almost 15 years later. It's it's quite interesting. So, uh, so that's that. Uh, hopefully now we'll be back into the normal routine weekly podcast. I have no idea what to expect. I know I'm not going to get into anything about the ownership situation, and I know the mayor's office is involved now. And I just have to roll my eyes when I read that because uh, nothing is easy and every kind of news situation with the Mets has to be met with a media dragged out drama, which I think in the end will be proven to be more smoke than fire. So I'm not even going to get into that. And if that does become a thing, we'll certainly talk about that. I think we're going to make that transition to going back to the current Met situation and talking about the team uh, it will happen next week I have a feeling that the World Series will be over and things will happen very quickly and then we could really look at and first see what the landscape is going to be with the rules I know there's some debate by the commissioner about what kind of rules they're going to bring back we've talked about that I've given my feelings I have a feeling that we're going to have to revisit that a little bit Um, so you know it'll be interesting to see but I wanted to thank all of you you know some of the the very kind words about uh, the Piazza piece and the support that I've gotten from longtime listeners and and some new listeners. And what made me happy is to see Joe Pantorno, who works for AM New York, getting some love from a a, a new listener that, or maybe a longtime listener, I should say, I don't know how how recent the the listener was on Twitter said, Hey, I heard you on Mike's podcast and now I'm following you. That's what this is about. At the end, sharing good content, putting a, forward what the good is in the media landscape, in the podcasting landscape, in the entertainment landscape of what this is, and pointing out the things that are wrong, and there's a lot wrong out there. But what I most want to thank you for is the support as you continue to listen here. I got a lot of criticism throughout the summer for sharing my personal beliefs about what was going on with the team, both on the field and off the field, specifically their reaction and how they treated the fans back in August, and I don't want to go back and revisit that whole thing. You guys know what I'm talking about. And there was a number of people that would leave very uh, nasty comments on Apple Podcast and whatnot, trying to get you guys not to listen anymore, trying to get the show canceled. And that's their right, because I believe that if you hate this show, you should let me know, and you could put your opinion out there. You want to give it a one-star? Put it out there. Uh, It motivates me to do better. It motivates me to give you a better product. I think at times people do it to hurt the product, and that's not who I am. I disagree with somebody. I wouldn't overtly hurt them. I might say I disagree with them. Or if I disagree with them, I'd say, you know, that's not something I should partake in. I'm not going to give a one rating or a zero rating or attack somebody personally because I don't share the same beliefs as you. That's what's dangerous about these times. So I want to thank those who have stuck around. I think those that have stuck around, and most of you, everybody has, because I look at the numbers, and I've always told you, if the numbers drop to a level that I say, hey, people don't buy into this thing, I'll go away. I will. I will, because I don't get paid a lot to do this. Uh, I do this because I feel obligated now to this audience that I've built over a long, long, long period of time. In some cases, people have been with me since 2007 when I started. And uh, that's what motivates me to continue. And I want to thank you. It's kind of to me, puts 2020 into the, to a certain degree, in the back mirror, you know, rear view mirror. I know it's still 2020 and we're still not too far away from New Year's, but it's coming. Uh, but we're really focused on 2021 now. And I think that's what you're going to see going forward starting hopefully next week. And uh, we should be back into the grind. We'll see. The team and the news. Right now it's a little bit of that purgatory again because we don't know. It's a transition time. And uh, uh, I think there's going to be some news. And I think we're going to have some things to talk about. That's all I'll say. Hey, again, I want to thank all of you for listening and being part of this. I want to thank Anthony DeComo. Check him out on Twitter at Anthony DeComo. And check out his book, The Captain, The David Wright Memoir. Great piece. Of course, you could check me out all the time on Twitter at Mike Silva Media, and you could get the show at the theTalkingMetsPodcast.com. Want to send me a note? Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
1: Need